be good for a scratchy voice. <laughs> but I'm here for you Friday if you need it. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. I'm wearing a black just, sweater, so have that on just in case. Good. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14 will be in verses 7 to 11. Luke 14, 7 to 11. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we just rightly sang, more of you, less of us. Father, we don't want those just to be words that we sing on a screen. We want that to be reality. We think of John 3, the 30th verse, where John says, He, Christ, must increase. I must decrease. Father God, we ask that that would be our heart desire, that would be reality in our lives, that we would recognize that the chief end or goal of man is to bring glory to your name, and we would not allow things to get in the way of that. More of you, less of us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. In his best-selling book, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer, a mountain climber, tells about an attempt to get to the peak of Everest in 1996. There was a woman on that trip, Yusako Namba, 46 years old. She had already assailed seven of the eight highest peaks in the world. Everest, the highest peak, was left. If she would reach the summit, she would be the oldest woman ever to reach the summit of Everest. The oldest Japanese person ever to reach the summit. She was excited. Her goal was to reach that summit. And so John, who was on that expedition, says that Yusako kind of left everybody in the dust, so to speak. She drove the expedition. She wanted it to go faster. She wanted to lead it. She exerted a great deal of energy, perspired a fair amount, and at age 46, she got to the summit. She was the pride of Japan, the oldest woman ever to reach the summit. It was a great day, a great moment. She was now eight of eight for the highest peaks in the world. On the way down, they ran into a blizzard. And she had exerted far too much energy, and she was wet on the inside from perspiring. With the blizzard came decreased temperatures, and Sako froze to death. The day of her greatest triumph was her last day on earth. John Krakauer wrote about that event, and he said, Yusako made a fundamental mistake that mountain climbers should never make. Her mistake was that the goal was to get to the summit, 
That's never the goal. The goal is to get back down to the bottom. She had the wrong goal. And because she had the wrong goal, she exerted the wrong amount of energy in the wrong way, and it cost her her life. The goal was wrong. And when the goal is wrong, sometimes difficulty and tragedy ensue. And Jesus is concerned, as he talks to us today in a parabolic form, that some have the wrong goal. As we talked about last week, the right goal is that the chief end or goal of man is to glorify God. And sometimes even knowing that intellectually, even believing it in our heart, we can get caught up in a number of sub-goals here on earth. And in those sub-goals, we take our eyes off of the Lord and onto ourselves, and we start to pursue secondary goals, and we make them primary in our life. Goals of success and grandeur. Goals in which we are elevated and somehow God has placed second and tertiary in our life. And down the ladder he goes. And Jesus is concerned that we might not get the right goal. Let me pick up in our text. I want to read from Luke chapter 14, 7 to 11, about some people with the wrong goal. Now he, Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, which by the way is the front row in case you're wondering for next week. <laughs> but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And thinking about this, one wag once said, the people like the front of the line, the back of the church, and the most exalted place in people's lives. Jesus is concerned about the third part of that, seeking the most exalted places, so he gives us a parable. Now, let me put the parable into 21st century terms. Let's suppose for a moment that I go to a wedding. And in this particular wedding, I didn't perform the ceremony, so I was sitting towards the back. <coughs> Excuse me. And after the wedding, there's a little break before the reception, but I've got nothing to do, so I go straight to the reception hall. And I've been to a couple weddings in my life, so I know exactly what to expect. When you go into the banquet, just before you get there, there's a long table. And on the table, there's a number of little placards. And you look for your name, and the little placard tells you what table you're sitting at. Now, in this particular hypothetical wedding, there's 18 tables. You don't want to be sitting at table 18. 
Table 18 is for those individuals who are at the very last part of the, uh, the line. You know, they just made it in. They were just invited to the reception. They're kind of at the, the back of the list. You don't want to be at table 18. But when I get there, there's no table with no placards with no names. So I think to myself, okay, I've got this. I'm going to go in. They must have the placards on the table. I'll go look for my name. I've got plenty of time. I'm the first one there. And I walk in. And there's no placards on the table. This is a free-for-all. There's no way I'm sitting at table 18. That's Loserville. Now, I think to myself, how am I going to do this strategically? Table number one, that's for the wedding party. I, I'm not part of that. I can't sit there. Table number two, that's the bride's family table. I'm not going to go there. Table number three is the groom's family. But table number four, it's right in the middle it's right close up to the front. And if I sit on the right side, I can look at the bridal party. I can have the best seat in the house. Now, I'm the first one there. And I think to myself, I'm going to be really calm about this. I'm going to sit in table number four in the best seat. Everybody will walk in and they'll think, oh, Mr. Biggs. He was probably asked to sit there. Everybody else, no assigned seating, but he got the best seat that's not family, it's probably where they ask Jeff to sit. And so I'm sitting there and people come in and, and I'm trying to remain calm, but you know, everybody's keeping their eye on me and, and I'm, I'm kind of impressed with where I'm sitting. And the place all fills up. And then I feel it. It's kind of a presence. You know when someone is behind you, they're not touching you, but you just kind of know they're there. There's this presence behind me and I think, man, who is this? And I turn around, and it's the father of the bride. And he bends down, and he says, I I'm really sorry. We, we should have marked this table. This is for special friends of the family, people who are much like the family. We're going to have to ask you to get up. Can you find another seat? And I'm looking around, and I mean every, oh, no. Table 18, Loserville. There's one seat left. And it's with one's back to the wedding party. It's the worst seat in the place. And in front of everybody, I've got to get up and I've got to go back and sit down there. That's the 21st century version of what Jesus talks about. Let me put it back in the first century. In the first century, they don't have tables like we do and they don't have chairs they have a little platform. It's probably 12 to 18 inches off the ground. And everybody moves up to the table and they have a cushion where they put their arm and their legs are sprawled out and it will be in a U-shape, much like you've seen some U-shaped couches like that. And in the center of that U-shape is where the bride and the groom are going to be. And they're leaning there and then those closest, the bridal party will be on the outer part and some family. And then those who are further in relationship to the bride and the groom, they'll be further out on that U-shape. But according to Jesus, he's at a funeral. He's watching people. They're jostling for the best seat. They don't want to sit at table 18. They want table four. And he's watching individuals who are sitting closer to the bride and the groom than their intimacy actually allows. And Jesus says, don't do that because 
the father of the bride's going to tap your shoulder and he's going to ask you to get up and it's going to be embarrassing as you go to table number 18, Loserville, in front of everyone. Now I've got to ask myself a question. Did Jesus give this parable to teach me some etiquette when I go to a wedding? Is that the purpose of the parable? that I will know when I get to a wedding that I need to sit further away rather than closer. Is that the point of the parable? If it is, I've got to tell you that I get to take a pass. Because although I use myself as the example, I'm not really naturally on the extroverted side. I'm a little more on the introverted side. And there is no way that I'm sitting at table number four. The truth is, I prefer table number 18. I don't sit in the front row. Nobody else does in this church either. (laughs) I sit in the back row. That's where I want to be. So if this is about etiquette, I can pass because this parable really isn't about me. It's about extreme extroverts, the individuals who like to be seen, who like to be in the seat of prominence, that naturally is for some, but it's naturally not for others. And yet Jesus won't let me off the hook. Let me read verse 11 again. He says this, For everyone, no, everyone, no. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, there's nobody the parable is not for. It really isn't about where we sit at weddings. The parable is about pride. And whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, whether you're choleric or sanguine or melancholy or phlegmatic, wherever you are on either of those spectrums, All of us, everyone, has an issue with sin. In fact, the sin that we have an issue with more than all others, the sin that drives all others, is pride. And this text is about pride. And all of us have an issue with pride. As I thought about that, I thought about a movie. I didn't see it, but I read about it. It was released in 2015. It was called The Walk. It was about Felipe Pettit, who is a real individual. He was a tightrope walker. In fact, when the Twin Towers in New York were still standing, he actually walked on a tightrope between the Twin Towers in New York. A very accomplished tightrope walker. The early scene of the movie has him as an understudy for Papa Rudy. And Papa Rudy has a tight rock troupe in France, and they go all over Europe. And when the big tent is up and the people come, Felipe Pettit doesn't get on the tightrope. He's the understudy. But when nobody's around, he's up on that tightrope. And in those days, they walked the tightrope without a net. There was no safety, so if you fell, you fell to your death. 
And so the scene opens up, and Felipe is up there, and he's walking along on the tightrope, and, and he sees Father Rudy walk in, and he thinks, you know, this is a time to show him how well I'm doing. He has three steps left until he gets to the platform, to the ladder to go on down, and he kind of lunges for it, kind of with a, a little bit too much bravado, and he shakes the rope or the, the tight rope, and, and he falls. And he just catches himself and, and out of breath, he makes himself come over and he goes down the ladder and he realizes he could have died. And Father Rudy says to him, do you know when tightropers die? They die when they think they have it all together. They die when they become too self-assured. They die when the pride gets the best of them. That's when tightrope walkers die. It's when they think they have it all together. That's the most dangerous time. When they become arrogant, danger strikes. And I think that's what the text is telling to us. When you and I become arrogant, that's when danger in our spiritual walk strikes. Again, allow me to read verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Scripture is all over this truth. All the time we're told that when we become self-reliant rather than God-reliant, God feels the need to humble us. The humbling may become temporal when God does or allows something in our life so that we realize we are dependent on him. It could even have eternal ramifications, not where we spend eternity, but we might lose eternal rewards that we could have had when we become arrogant and self-reliant rather than God-reliant, when we pump ourselves up, when we're not with John who says, he must increase and I must decrease, but instead we think to ourselves, I must increase, and by the way, God will then decrease. God says, beware. Let's look at a number of passages in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. The first is actually from Ezekiel in the Old. If I were to ask this question, I wonder how you'd answer it. What is the sin that brought Sodom down? I wonder what you'd say. If you were looking at Genesis 19, you'd probably say immorality. But remember, there's another sin that is the undercurrent of every sin, and that's pride. And that's what Ezekiel addresses when he talks about Sodom in Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Let me read it. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Certainly immorality is one of the results of pride which led to the destruction of Sodom, but the undercurrent was pride. Immorality comes from pride, the desire that we're on the throne rather than God on the throne. 
Jesus wrote this or said this in Matthew 23, 8 to 12. But you are not to be called rabbi or rabboni. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. For you have a father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors. For you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, don't be caught up in titles and don't be caught up in man's praise. Seek to praise God. James puts it this way in James 3, 14 and 15. He says, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. It does not come from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. James writes this in James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I had a pastor friend who once said quite often in prayer, Lord, allow me to be humble so you don't need to humble me. That's pretty good. Allow me to be humble so you do not need to humble me. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Over and over again, Scripture tells us that we need humility in our life and that pride is actually the undercurrent that leads to other sins. What was the fall of Lucifer, the son of the morning star? I think that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are both about the fall of Satan. And it was the desire of Satan to want to be like God, to be equal to, be, to God, to have others worship him as God. And that led to his downfall. You look at Genesis 3 and Romans 5. And although Eve is deceived, what is the fall of Adam? It's a desire to be like God. It's a desire to be equal to God. It's the sin of pride. I wonder what pride might look like today. There's so many possible examples. We've already mentioned the desire for titles. Jesus said, don't go around having people call you rabbi. Some people desire to be called by titles as evidence that in some way they feel superior to others. Now, some titles are very important. If I'm on a gurney and I'm about to be operated on, the person with the scalpel, she or he, better be called doctor or surgeon. I'm just saying that title matters at that moment to me. But more often than not... Titles are just not that important. They tend to elevate someone above someone else. It's pride. Pride might look like this. You and I are having a discussion, but I'm really not listening to you. I'm waiting for you to pause so that I can share what's really intelligent to you. And rather than listening, I'm preparing what I'm about to say. I know that you've never done that, but you've been in the room with other people who have done that. It's an issue of pride. Somehow thinking that what 
one has to say is more important than what somebody else might say. Pride might be the desire and the expectation that people ask one for advice. And when one doesn't get asked for advice, one is annoyed. Or when one does get asked for advice and the advice is not followed, one is angered. That can be pride. There's lots of examples of pride. Name dropping. Trying to keep up with the proverbial Joneses and Smiths. Whatever they have, we want in one little bit bigger, a little bit newer, a little bit more shiny. Not because we have need of it, not because it is necessary in our life, or even a good blessing from God and we're thankful for it. We just want it in order to be one up on somebody else. God is quite concerned about pride in my life. So how do I address pride? Daily. I think that's the way you and I need to address pride daily. I wish there was a formula. I don't really think there is. But there are a few thoughts. One way for you and I to address pride is to keep our eyes on Jesus. When we meditate on Jesus, think about Jesus, imitate Jesus, our pride tends to be quelled. I think of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, a passage many of you probably have memorized. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What this is saying is that Jesus was God, is God, always will be God. Ontologically, the essence of his being, Jesus is God. It's the Greek word homoousios. He's of the same substance as the Father. Not homoousios of similar substance as Arians teach, but he is of the same substance. He has a quality ontologically with the Father, but there's a functional subordination which actually is modeled in marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, models the Trinity in marriage. So whatever goes on in the Trinity ought to go on in marriage. That's the, the, the way that the Father and the Son interact with one another. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Can you imagine the creator takes on the form of the creation and a low form of the creation, a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And you remember in Scripture, cursed is he who hangs on the cross or hangs on a tree. Jesus became cursed for us. He who did not have sin took on sin for us, that through faith in him we would become the righteousness of God. And this is the result. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see this model, and when I think on Christ and I meditate on Christ and I imitate Christ, that helps me with my pride. John's right, he must increase, we must decrease, but but think of how he lived. He lived with incredible humility. And the result is God exalts him. The Father exalts the Son. And so, back to the parable, sit towards the back. And then someone will invite you to the front. But if you sit in the front, someone might have to demote you to the back. And that someone might actually be God. Because God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. So we handle pride daily by thinking on Christ, meditating on Christ, imitating on Christ. And then we recognize our own need for self-examination. We remember Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? And so we ask God to reveal what is in our heart. Listen to Psalm 139, 23 and 4. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So perhaps as part of our prayer life, we say to the Lord, Lord, I've confessed what I know. Are there other things in me? Search me, O God, and reveal the grievous, or other translations, the wicked ways in me. Reveal that to me, and then we confess, we agree with God, and then we, in the power of His Spirit, begin to turn away from that sin and towards righteousness. We call that repentance. So how do we deal with pride daily? We think about Christ. We meditate on Christ. We imitate Christ. We recognize the deceitfulness of ourselves. We ask God to search us, and when God reveals things to us, we confess and we repent. This fall when I was at Camp Forest Springs, now called Forest Springs, it was Labor Day actually, I guess the end of summer, we were taught by the worship leader this little phrase, God is higher than we think. We are much lower than we think, and God's grace is much greater than we think. And what they made us do is repeat it. And since I don't have any originality of my own, I'm going to ask you to say it with me. God is much higher than we think. We are much lower than we think. God's grace is much greater than we think. That's a phrase or three phrases worth memorizing. God is higher. We are lower. God is greater in grace than we think. I think if we get those three phrases we get the parable that Jesus taught. Let's pray. Father God, uh, you are much greater than we could ever imagine. And we are probably lower in terms of ethical and moral behavior than we can imagine. But we're thankful that your grace 
is more genuine, wider, more gracious than we could ever fathom. Father, we readily admit that we have pride issues, whether introverts, extroverts, regardless of our personality type, we have pride issues. And pride is the undercurrent of all of our sin. We ask, Father, that you would grow us to be humble so you don't have to humble us. Father, we remember that you're opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And we ask that we would be the humble that receive the grace out of your kindness and generosity. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.